right, welcome to the show. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, hour number three, the Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. I'm talking about this. Uh, well, first we were talking about the uh, the results of the DPI, North Carolina Department of Public Instruction, the results of their uh, report into learning loss, which the teachers union representative said was a false construct last year. Um, not a false construct, actually, and every single kid has been negatively impacted by all of the policies that the adults have adopted over the last two years uh, to the point where they are behind where they should have been. I went over then a piece at the Atlantic magazine uh, that had explored the problems with speech therapy, where kids that are in masks at very young ages are being developmentally stunted because they cannot see the therapist's mouths. They cannot feel the tactile uh, therapies and stuff, like with the tongue depressor and the like. And this leads me to the, the cover story at the Washington Examiner from last week, the pandemonium of pandemic parenting. My friend, uh, friend Ed Billick left me uh, his copy of it here, and so I was reading through it, and it, I actually had prepped up all of this stuff and so I just saw this article and I started reading it before the program. And this is like, this is exactly right. This is very similar to the contempt that we saw from Hillary Clinton when she used that line about the basket of deplorables. And when you show and express contempt for people, they tend to reciprocate that to you. And that's what she saw in the November election. And uh, and she knew and her campaign knew that that was a really big mistake when she when she walked off the stage, she said something to one of her aides, knowing that that was a mistake. Um, That same sort of dynamic is at play right now, the contempt that we have seen towards parents. And here's the problem. This was what the uh, the editor of the examiner pointed out as well, is that parents, it's not a it's not a single demographic. It's the public. Parents are the public. And so when you start going after parents and you start saying things like, oh, they're domestic terrorists, you're basically holding like 90% of the public in contempt. And as I said earlier, they tend to reciprocate. From this piece, though, it's by Christine Rosen at The Examiner. I'm just going to hit one other piece, uh, one other part of the story here. Um She talks about how parents were uh, expected to shoulder the burden and the blame for any suffering experienced by their children as the direct result of institutional and leadership failures. So when Roy Cooper would do things that failed to achieve the objective that he outlined, what what was the response? It was that we weren't masking hard enough. We weren't vaccinating enough people, right? They, they just kept hammering and hammering and hammering away. It was never that, hey, maybe our approach here is not the right approach. This is one of the things I've always asked of people who get up there and they're like, yay, vaccine, yay, vaccine, go get a vaccine. You need to get a vaccine. Why won't you get a vaccine? Like, who are you talking to? The people who already want a vaccine got it. So now you're just lecturing them. Or do you think you're persuading people that are anti-vaccine? 
do you think you're making any inroads whatsoever with them? I'm going to say no, because you're lecturing them. You're telling them that they're the reason why everyone is still getting sick with Omicron. Oh, sorry. With Omicron. So you held them in contempt. Plague rats who called me and others, even though I got the shots. And then I got Omicron. Oh, sorry. Here's the key for me, though, out of this story. School closures were the most egregious examples of such failures, but there were many smaller challenges that affected the daily lives of parents and their children. And in all of the cases, from the closed playgrounds and canceled sports and extracurricular activities and stuff, the failure of the leaders and the institutions all got passed along to parents who were expected to endure them in silence, which for the most part they did. And then they had no accountability for when the policies failed. At the core of conservatism, core principles, first principles, it's family. That's, that's where it starts. That's like a lot of people on the left think, oh, you're just one about individualism and that sort of thing. And don't get me wrong, individual rights and liberties, that is one of the core principles as well. But, but really, before that, it's the family. That's the core unit that the society is built upon. And you're telling the core unit of the society that... They have to endure all of these things, and if any of these things don't achieve the goals that we said they would, that's your fault. Like, I'm not sure you could come up with a worse electoral strategy, but Democrats did it. Um, the safety is the last point here. She says the safetyism that dominated elite parenting before the pandemic, and that Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff described in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind called it the safetyism culture, a culture in which safety has become a sacred value and in which people are unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. That became the ruling principle of the pandemic. But that's how you had, remember the, remember the, the, was it a cartoon? I think it was where it showed this family and they were all like spread out in different parts of their really large house. And you got like, you know, the uh, one of them's upstairs reading and one of them is like cooking and they're all doing all these different things like, oh, look at me. I've got all this free time on my hand during the lockdown. Like, I'm going to learn to cook things. I'm going to read all these books. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm thinking, what a life of privilege you must have. Because as I mentioned earlier, I started a podcast during the pandemic. That's what I did. I woke up every morning at 5 a.m. I went to bed every night at about 10 or 11 and I only took one or two breaks. That was when Christy would come home for lunch and I would eat with her at lunch. And then when she would come home for dinner and I would eat with her at dinner. And all the rest of my day I was working. I was working from home, but it was work. I wasn't part of the uh, essential personnel that was running around delivering the groceries to all the shut-ins, right? I wasn't part of that crowd. But there... Like, I remember looking at that cartoon and seeing all of these people that were drawn in that house, and there was one person walking up delivering food. So for that guy, the food delivery guy, like, 
sorry, dude. Hope you don't get COVID, but we're going to lock ourselves in our home and read the great works of the 19th century. Good luck. Like, what a remarkably condescending and arrogant elitist view. And the, the person who drew the cartoon, and then the people who shared it, they did not, they did not see it that way at all. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So all of the impacts on the kids and the schools, and meanwhile you've got the teachers that they're like, oh, the teachers are quitting in record numbers. Is that actually true? Uh, not really. No, I've got the story. It's The number of, t- it, it, it's roughly what it was the prior year. But there has been a shift, right? There has been a shift. And uh, in what people are willing to put up with now versus what they were willing to put up with before. This is, it has been a very clarifying time. People have reprioritized things. Do you want it, for example, um, commuting? Do you want to be in a car for two hours, three hours per day, every day for the rest of your life? Is that how you want to use your life? Now, look, I say this as one who enjoys driving. I do enjoy driving. Contrary to what my wife might believe, part of yelling at other motorists is part of my enjoyment. Okay. Um, the uh, But I enjoy driving. However, I also recognize that when I was doing the show from home, from my home studio, um, I was more productive because I wasn't in the car. I wasn't wasting over an hour a day just driving. I could work right up to the show started, and I could keep working right after the show ended. And I'm not alone in that, by the way. People report in the studies that, uh, in these polling and the surveys, that they are also more productive. Businesses are kind of in a jam right now. Um, which is why I was fascinated by this story. Uh, this was also at the Atlantic. This one came down about a week ago by Derek Thompson. Whether the five-day work week is dying. Not just the office culture, like, because that's, like, up until now, right, that's been the, the main uh, sort of juxtaposition in this argument is that, uh, look, you may be more productive or you may just enjoy it, you know, being able to, work from home in your pajamas or whatever. But what of the office culture? To which anybody that's worked in an office says, yeah, what about it? The office culture? Because honestly, like a lot of office cultures, they're terrible. I mean, you're you're forced to be around people that you do not like, that uh, get you sick, uh, that are, uh, that have uh, varying levels, usually less than mine, of hygiene and the like. And so, uh, no, it's, you know, the, the, the office culture has limited benefit. Now, there are some benefits. See, there I go again. There's Pete seeing all of the different nuances and the complex angles. But I do recognize there, are a lot of value. there, there is a lot of value. Like, for example, just yesterday, I was walking through. I was getting a cup of coffee during the program, and I ran into somebody in the sales department, and I was able to have a very lovely conversation and... uh 
we would, in Jen Psaki style, circle back at a later date for some follow-up information to be exchanged. And that was a very productive thing. That would not have happened with me being at home, right? But a lot of Americans still are not going back to the office. Derek Thompson writes that according to data from Kessel Systems, which tracks building access across the country, office attendance is at 33% of its pre-pandemic average. 33%. That is lower than in-person attendance in just about any other industry for which we have good data. For all, so this is the the office environment versus other types of sectors. In an office, even movie theaters, for example, a business that people were like, "Oh, they're dead. They're never coming back." Movie theaters are done. They, they've recovered almost twice as much as the offices have, which is why the by the way, uh, why you you will rarely hear me engage in speculative journalism. It's the laziest form of journalism. The people that were writing all of the. Uh, uh, you know, the obituaries for movie theaters. You didn't know that. I actually worked with, there was a movie theater in um, uh, Western North Carolina that uh, when the pandemic hit, I was doing the podcast and they took their operation outside. They're like, look, we got this huge building because there were theaters inside, right? You got screens, but they got huge, big blank walls. And so at sundown, they just started doing drive-ins. They did drive-in movies during the whole pandemic. And then, I got it. I, I put my advertising up on their pre-roll. Like, so before the movie began, people saw my ad for the, for the podcast. And um, like, that's people adapted businesses adapted. So people that were speculating, all oh, movie theaters, they're done for. You don't know that. This is part of my problem with people who make all of these wild predictions about how we don't have enough food to feed all the people. Like they were saying that 30 years ago. And you never take into account the human ability to adapt. Because that's what we do. We're humans. So, I mean, that's what, like, yeah, we're humans, so we adapt because that's what humans do. It's pretty self-evident. Maybe you can call that like a circular logic, but I don't care. Works for me. For tens of millions of knowledge economy workers, the knowledge economy, how come we didn't go with brain workers? That's a better sounding class. Brain workers, the brain, the brain powers. News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Talking about the five-day work week dying in the office culture. Monica tweets at Pete Callender. You got the office gossip. The person most likely to snap. The hypochondriac. The person who must have pictures of the owner with goats because they do no work. The schmoozer. The person who recognizes no personal space, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, like a lot of the people who are lamenting the death of the office culture, they must be detached from reality because the office culture has not really been so great at a lot of places, right? Now, look, I've worked at some great places, and I've worked at some not great places. So uh, the office culture is what you make it. Now, is the five-week, or sorry, the five-day work week dying? Derek Thompson at The Atlantic in his newsletter the other day, he makes the case that it is. Um, 
He says, I talked to, or he's got a quote here from Nick Bloom, an economics professor at Stanford, who said, quote, I talked to hundreds of companies about remote work, and 95% of them now say they're going hybrid, while the other 5% are going full remote. The number of person days in the office is never going back to pre-pandemic average, ever. That's what this guy predicts. After two years of working from home, he said, employees don't just prefer it. They also feel like they're getting better at it. Despite widespread reports of burnout, self-reported productivity has increased steadily in the past year, according to his research. Now, that's self-reported productivity. But, like, I, I can tell you flat out I'm more productive at home. Absolutely. Um, but, I, but I'm also a self-motivated kind of guy. So... I could totally see where people would abuse the system, right? But I also can understand why you should be able to, if you're uh, a corporate entity, you should be able to track productivity pretty well, right? The guy, like, for example, the guy that walks around, as Monica called him, the schmoozer, the guy that walks around poking his head into everybody's cubicle or office, hanging around the water cooler, right? That guy who does no work, can't hide anymore on a team project or something, right? People are going to know, hey, this guy is not producing because just look at the email traffic or something. Unless, of course, maybe he's sending tons of emails instead of, like, stealing people's time. I call them the time burglars. Yeah, they come around to your desk and they just, like, set up camp, want to talk to you about all sorts of stuff. You're like, dude, I, I, I got a show that's, like, in, I don't know, seven hours from now. You're going to wrap this up anytime soon? Anyway, um... In the next decade, U.S. workers will spend about 25% of their time working from homes, uh, according to this economist. That's 20 percentage points higher than the pre-pandemic figure, leaving companies with an important choice. Do you sign for significantly less office space, or do you accept that significantly more of your space is going to go unused on any given day? Because if you got to lease the space, how much space do you lease? How much do you need? And businesses have to make these kinds of forward-looking projections. This is the thing that a lot of politicians never understand, is that businesses, they have to have plans put in place. So they're looking to the future and trying to guess. And then they have to put a whole bunch of money up on that guess. And then you get the politician coming in, ripping you because you happened to calculate correctly and made a profit on those guesses. And then the politician comes in and says, you need to pay me my fair share for your good guessing i mean you just guessed so bloom is betting strongly on the latter that they're just going to accept that they're going to have more unused space every day office occupancy has plummeted but corporate demand for office space is only down about one percent that might sound shocking but it's because so many companies planning for hybrid work are expecting most of the office to be in on some days of the week so they cannot shrink their space Um, He says, or uh, Derek Thompson says, I should stress that the majority of Americans still cannot do work remotely. They cannot and do not work remotely. The majority of Americans. The five-day work week is dying. Here's his case. I know it sounds like a dramatic prediction, but follow the breadcrumbs. According to the research, the most popular model of hybrid work has employees in the office Tuesday through Thursday. This model, with Friday through Monday out of office, is hugely attractive to new hires And it's become a key weapon for companies. 
It's not that everybody gets a four-day weekend, but rather it gives them flexibility to travel on Fridays and Mondays while continuing to work. The once solid walls between work and life become more porous. Your work-life balance, right? The typical five-day work week may dissolve into something stranger and less settled, like a three-day office week that exists within a longer work week. We might actually be working more than five days a week. And I got to tell you, I am already one of those people. I work basically every day, a couple hours every day. I'm doing something on my days off, quote unquote, days off. Everything is show prep. As I said earlier, ABP, always be prepping. But that's not all. Bloom told me that he's also seeing signs of remote work envy from people who cannot do their jobs from home. There's real resentment among, among workers who have this cushy work from home deal, but All their white-collar friends, or they don't have that deal, but all of their white-collar friends have that deal. I've talked to hospitals whose shift workers would rather work longer hours, four days, than fewer hours for all five. This, to me, makes the most amount of sense. This, to me, makes the most amount of sense for a lot of these brain jobs or whatever. Like, this, to me, makes sense. Why, Why stick people into the office environment for five, eight-hour shifts why not do four 10-hour shifts? Why not do it that way? And then you get three days off. And you know that they're going to check their stuff on one of their days off. Um, the big picture prediction is plausible. If the five-day office week is a goner for knowledge workers, then the consequences could touch every corner of the labor market. Um One response is that companies may try to make their offices an experience. This was like what happened with brick-and-mortar stores when they got disrupted by the Internet. Uh, They were like, well, if you come shop here, it's an experience. Okay, so what, you're going to have like um, pool tables, spas, and lounges, and that sort of stuff in your office environment? Maybe so. Even if that's possible, it's not going to be enough. Return to office preferences are all over the place so a one-size-fits-all policy is, is going to make, make a lot of people upset. You're not going to satisfy everybody. Um, the most popular hybrid solution for employers, which is three days in the office for everybody, that's only the preference for 14% of the workforce. So what the companies want, what the employees want, not the same thing. Um, like most things, there are pros and cons. When the office was the nucleus of white-collar work, there were problems But when the office stops being the nucleus, there will be problems, too. They're just going to be different problems. You're going to you're going to have higher turnover because now people are not going to be loyal because they have no personal connection, no personal relationships to the people that are working with them. Right. So that easier for them to to just drop out of the chat room, because that's basically what their work life has become. Right. It's just a chat room. And they see some people. Hey, how's it going? But they don't know these people. They just see them on a little screen. So. Hey, you know what? I got a better off across town. I'm gone. That's it. Also, cities are starting to freak out about it because they sunk they sunk all this uh, money up front to build their downtowns. We'll do more on that tomorrow. We'll see you then. Don't break anything while I'm gone.